And would you pray with me, please? Oh God, our refuge and our strength, you protect us in the mighty fortress of your constant love. Keep us ever strong in the victory of Jesus Christ that we have over sin and death, and fill us with hope that we might serve you as his courageous disciples, both now in these days and in all of our days and into eternity. This we pray in his powerful name. Amen. Amen. Of all the promises God gives us in scriptures, there are three that stand out as the pillars of our hope. In the Gospels, uh, Jesus promised that he would go to the cross, he would be crucified as a sacrifice for our sins. And as we've been studying through the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 9, Uh, we find Jesus saying the Son of Man must suffer these things. There's the promise. And be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and he must be killed. And in the Gospel of John, John the Baptist would look at Jesus and say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, And through that first promise, you and I can know through his sacrifice that our sins have been forgiven. The second great promise, foundational promise, that Jesus made was that having died, he would then rise from the grave. And again in Luke chapter 9, Jesus continued, the Son of Man must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And through that second promise, you and I can know that we have eternal life. The resurrection is ours. John writes in 1 John chapter 5, He who has the Son has the life. And history reveals that those first two promises have been fulfilled. And again last Sunday, and every Easter, we celebrate that fact as paid in full. But there is a third promise that turns our eyes into the future. And that is that Jesus Christ is coming again. In the 14th chapter of the Gospel of John, Jesus says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, he said, I would have told you. But I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. And it is with that certainty of this third promise that you and I have the assurance of eternal life. It is a wonderful promise. And it is sealed in the future that Jesus Christ is coming again. Throughout the Bible, that, that assurance has been pressed home. In the book of Acts, the angels assure the disciples upon Jesus' ascension that this same Jesus you have seen taken away from you in heaven will come back. And in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven, Jesus Christ is coming back. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, Jesus describes that moment. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, all of the angels will be with him. He will sit on his throne in heavenly glory, and all of the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Jesus Christ is coming again. And at the end of the Bible, God confirms this as the very next meaningful event in history. 
Three times in the, in the last chapter of Revelation, Jesus makes his promise. I am coming soon, he says. I am coming soon, he says. Yes, I am coming soon. Jesus Christ is coming again. And taking that promise to heart, believers throughout the ages have drawn courage from what is called in, in Titus chapter 2, our blessed hope. We wait for the blessed hope, we read, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is coming again. Now, I will not presume to know how you feel about that fact, but I know that the return of Jesus Christ never fails to create mixed responses and emotions. For those who are ready, there is always a sense of comfort and anticipation. For those who are not ready or do not believe, the response is mixed. Some are irritated, some are amused, some are intimidated, and some are afraid. And most simply refuse to even think about it. And even among believers, I have discovered that those who think about it say, in reality, can you hold off a little bit, Jesus, because I've got some other things I'd like to do. But Jesus Christ is coming again, and no one can claim neutrality upon the issue. I love the story told by Chuck Swindoll of a friend who, a, 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 a few years before he decided he himself would become a Christian, was hiking, uh, hitchhiking his way across America. And one evening, as it began to drizzle, he prayed that he would find a ride. And sure enough, a car stopped, and the door opened, and, and the man inside said, hop in! And as he climbed in the car and he got his bearings, he noticed a little poster, a little sign on the dashboard of the car, which read, Warning. In the event of Christ's return, this driver will disappear and this car will (laughs) self-destruct. And at the bottom in bold red letters were four written uh, words written by the man driving the car. You better get ready. (laughs) The young man didn't know whether to write out his will at that moment or time or to just jump out of the car. Uh, But he did remember doing two things. First, he unlocked the door, as if that would help. (laughs) And then second, he decided to engage the driver in nonstop talk, figuring that God would not let him disappear if he was in mid-conversation. You can understand this. And so there you had two men in the car, uh, faced by actually one fact. The driver of the car had one response to the coming, the second coming of Jesus Christ, and it was one of certainty and of comfort and of expectation. The hitchhiker, on the other one, found himself filled with fear and some high degree of wonder. How about you? One thing's for sure. In the Bible, we are told that thoughts of his coming should have an impact on our lives right now as we are living. In the last chapter of 2 Peter, the apostle Peter himself writes, he says, the day of the Lord will come. And then he goes on and asks this question, what kind of people, in light of that fact that the day of the Lord will come, what kind of people ought we to be? And the answer he gives is a very immediate. He says, we ought to be ones living holy and godly lives as we look forward to the day of his appearing. How about you? 
This morning, as we continue through the Gospel of Luke, a study that we have been going through throughout the winter, uh, we arrive at chapter 12, and we look at verse 35, and there Jesus says, be dressed and ready for service and keep your lamps burning like men and women waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and he knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. On your sermon outline, I have it that the certainty of the future of the coming of Jesus Christ creates an attitude of accountability for us as we live in this very moment. Be dressed in readiness, Jesus says. Keep your lamps burning. In the Greek, this this verse begins with the emphatic use of the personal pronoun, you. And I suppose you could translate the Greek in words like this. Hey, you! <laughs> I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you. This is, this is pure New Jersey here, okay? This isn't Greek. Hey, you! And Jesus puts it in no uncertain terms. Verse 22. He is speaking to his disciples, those who belong to him. Hey, you! You who worry and fear. You who cling to slippery possessions. You who are afraid maybe of losing it all. You, you make yourselves ready. Take your eyes off of this world and put them onto me. Focus onto me. Hey, you, Jesus is saying, I'm talking to you. And the two pictures he paints here, the first is of being dressed, and the second is of holding a burning lamp. And they speak of a mentality that we are to have, an attitude that we are to to cultivate. In Jesus' day, when people dressed in readiness, that was, a, that was a particular phrase. And to dress in readiness, in, in Jesus' day, people would gather up their outer robes off the ground and they would tuck them up into their belt so that their legs could run with speed and freedom. Their clothing, the way they held their clothing, revealed their attitude that they were good to go and ready to run. This is the same sort of attitude Jesus wants to see in each and every one of his disciples, you and me as well. In the same way, in Jesus' day, care was given to keep the lamps burning through the night when someone special was expected to arrive. And it took work. It took care. They didn't have electricity in those days. They just didn't flip on a switch and then head off to bed. They were not the red roof in, we'll leave the light on for you. They had to stay up. They had to keep the wicks trimmed and the the fuel, the oil and the lamp. They had to stay up. It took work, it took care. Seeing a light meant that someone was watching, that someone cared, that someone was sacrificially giving up on their sleep and staying into the night, and they were wakeful. When Jesus returns, he wants our lights to be on. When he knocks at your door, he does not want to do it in the dark. Finding you stumbling, unprepared, he wants to know that you have cared to prepare and are looking forward to him. And Jesus goes on to say that it will be good for those who are prepared for his coming, especially because it will be a surprise. 
Look at verse 40 in chapter 12. He says, you must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Over the years as a pastor, I have had people pound me, press me to preach on the signs of the times. Every time anything happens, it seems, in the world, something in Israel or whether the world is about to be hit by Y2K or or, or the premier of the Soviet Union happens to step before the cameras and we see that there's a birthmark on his forehead, I will get notes that say, Pastor, you need to preach uh, on, on the second coming and prepare us for Jesus Christ. The latest of those moments has been just actually a week ago with the blood moons of this, of this year. And so here is my response to such pressure. You want to get ready for Jesus Christ and his coming? Do it every day. Don't wait for blood moons. Don't wait for Y2K. Don't, don't wait. Do it every day. Why? Because we have no idea when he is coming. In fact, in Mark chapter 13, even Jesus doesn't know the date of his return ticket. In Mark Mark chapter 13, verse 32, he says, No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son of God, only the Father. So, And he goes on to say, Be on guard, be alert, as you do not know that time when that time will come. Verse 37, and he goes on to say, I say to everyone, watch. I like the cotton patch version of the Bible at this point. It says, you know neither the day nor the hour when I is going to get you. John Gardner put it this way, to sensible men and women, every day is the day of reckoning. Every day is a test of your attitude of preparation. Every day And every moment is a test of your discipleship and that attitude of a servant. I love this story told by Don Hewson. One Sunday, after he had preached a sermon on the second coming of Christ, a little girl went home and she was quizzed by her mother. She says, she quizzed her mother, I'm sorry. Mommy, do you believe Jesus will come back? Mother said, well, yes. Could he come back this week? Yes. Could he come back today? Uh, yeah. Could he come back in the next hour? Yes. In, in the next few minutes? Why, why, yes, dear. Why? Mommy, would you comb my hair? Jesus is coming again. When, I cannot say. But every day is an opportunity for us to reveal our heartfelt attitude toward him, faithfulness in serving him, eagerness to please him, And should he return, faithfulness in what we give him. Either that or faithfulness in ignoring him, serving ourselves as if he did not matter at all. In verse 37, Jesus predicts what he, what what we can expect. Exactly. In verse 37, he says, It will be good for those servants whose masters, whose master, I'm sorry, finds them watching when he comes. I will tell you the truth. He will dress himself to serve. Keep in mind, this is a turning of the tables. 
He, the master, will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at his table, and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, regardless of the hour, even if he comes in the second or third watch in the middle of the night. I just love the imagery here. When, when the master comes, he actually turns the tables right upside down. He is so touched by the thoughtfulness and the faithfulness and the resiliency and the determination of his disciples that he surprises them by putting on a feast just for them. He is so moved by their faithfulness that he ends up taking a towel and wrapping it around his waist and washing their feet. And he sets their table and he pours out wine into their cups and he breaks their bread. That's our Jesus And he is overwhelmed by our love, and he overwhelms our love with his love, and the cup overflows. And the servants never expected this. The servants were just being faithful. They were dressed. They were ready. The lamps were burning steady on, steady on. But then the gift appears, and it's a feast of blessing. It doesn't get any better than this. But it sure could get worse. In verse 39, Jesus paints a picture of a different attitude, a different sort of response. That of a housekeeper caught unawares. And his lack of preparation allows a thief to come in and to break in and to pick him clean. Now, I, I don't I I don't care how successful you may be in this life, the size of your portfolio, the extent of your self-worth. Take all of your tangible assets, but ignore God, and the day will come when you will lose it all. And that day, when it comes, will be to you a curse. Those are the facts as they stand. And in verse 41, Luke chapter 12, verse 41, it becomes a matter of then personal responsibility. Peter, trying to make sense of this, asks the question, he says, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? You talking to me? You're looking at me? You're talking to me? I love what Jesus does in verse 42. He says, who is the wise and faithful servant or manager. He doesn't answer Peter's question directly. He doesn't have to. The answer is obvious. And it's rhetorical. And it allows us then to be able to provide the answer because we are all servants, stewards in God's creation and must answer the question. What type of steward are you going to be in light of Jesus Christ? Faithful and wise or faithless and doomed? As I've studied this passage, I cannot help but think that here Jesus adds then detail to the two pictures that he's already painted in verses 36 to 40. The good servants, the the ones faithful and wise, are those who live with an awareness that they were, in fact, just that, stewards. They did not own the master's house. They did not own any of his goods. 
It would have been placed in their care and only for a moment. And so as a result, they lived humble lives with a charge to keep and a responsibility to perform and a master to honor. And in their surprise, in the end, it's all then given to them as theirs. Look at verse 43. It will be good for that servant whom the master finds faithful when he returns. I tell you, Jesus says, he will be put in charge of all of the possessions. You know that I love that phrase that that was written by Jim Elliot, the, 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 the martyred missionary. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what can never be lost. Think of what treasures you, you have surrounding you in life, your family, your, your children, your skills, your achievements, your possessions, your occupation. The fact is they are not yours. They belong to God, and you are just a caretaker, a servant, a steward. Are you caring for them in God's way? On the other hand, back in verse 39, Jesus broke the wording of the parable by calling the head of the house not a servant, but an owner. And in verse 45, he expands that thought process a bit. There the servant says to himself, as if he actually owns this stuff, he says to himself, my master has gone a long long time. And the result, in his mind and in his actions, he becomes the owner of all he sees of the people around him, of, of, his, of all the things he possesses. And he assumes squatter's rights over what was the master's possessions until that horrible moment when the master returns. And it's a violent scene that cuts right to the quick. It is one of punishment and of beatings and of blows. In my imagination, it's not simply a matter of punishment. It is a reality. Some of you look at your life as an owner when you have no longer adopted that humility of a steward. You have become, in your own mind, an owner. Your marriage, you own your own spouse. Your kids, you own each one of them. Your job, your possessions, your reputation, you own each and every one. Your life, face it, you own it. Until that moment when you must give those things back. It's as if, then, in your own life, your bones must be broken to pry the fingers off what has never been yours to begin with. And that is violent. And that is painful. And that does cut to the quick. But Jesus says, from from everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. And so the question becomes, what are you doing with what God has given you? There will be a moment of accountability as certain as the fact that Jesus is coming again. What will that time reveal of you? Will it be a a time for you to, to fall apart in fear? Today is the day for you to make it a decision right now that you will make it a time to rejoice. One last story. Four months, a family had prepared for the trip of a lifetime. They were going to go to Disney World. 
They had read all the brochures, they had seen all the pictures, they had plotted their course, they had scoped it out, and the whole family has, was living on high alert. And the little boy in the family was totally jazzed. And on the night before they left, the little boy found that he just could not sleep. He tossed and he turned, but the excitement got to him. Finally, he, he got out of bed and he went into his parents' bedroom and he shook his father awake. Father, what are you doing up? And the little boy says, I can't sleep. And the father says, why can't you sleep? Well, well Daddy, I'm, I'm excited about tomorrow. Well, son, I'm sure you are, but it's going to be a great trip. But it won't be great if you don't get any sleep, so why don't you go back to bed and get a good night's rest? So the little boy shuffled back into his room, and he got in his bed, but it wasn't long before he was back again, tapping on his father on the nose. And the dad woke up again and was about to say something when he saw the expression on the little boy's face. What's the matter now, he said. The little boy looked at him and he said, Daddy, I just want to thank you for tomorrow. Daddy, I just want to thank you for tomorrow. A bit ago, I read you that promise that just resounds and echoes through the book of Revelation. At the closing of the word of God, where Jesus says, I am coming soon. I am coming soon. Yes, I am coming soon. And hearing those words All of God's children, each and every single one of us here, we have a response. The book of Revelation puts it this way, amen, come Lord Jesus. A little boy would put it this way, thank you Jesus, not only for today, thank you for tomorrow, and thank you for forever. I will give myself to you now, I will give myself to you for tomorrow and the day after and all the days of my life until you come again. And my thanksgiving is marked by faithfulness and discipleship because I am yours and forevermore. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray with with your promises set at heart and in mind that we might live out lives of obedience to you and and your claim on our lives. You have claimed us to yourself to be your children, to be your sons and your daughters, to be your men and your women, and Lord, your partners in the working of the kingdom. But in that, Lord, we are are your servants. We are your stewards. We don't own this work, Lord, but we have been privileged to put our hands to it. To care for, for those, Lord, you wish to touch. Our families, our children, our community, our church. We confess, Lord, that we get full of ourselves and we take it to ourselves, but Lord, it is yours. And So, Lord, now we humbly give back to you. And we do so in great anticipation for that day when you shall return so that we might be able to to give it to you all, not only as a gift, but as an offering of praise. And, Lord, we thank you, Lord, for our days are filled with fear and there are so many things, Lord, that cause us to tremble at the 
at, at the anticipation of the, of the opening moments before us. But Lord, you calm our hearts with the promise of your word. You are coming again. So Lord Jesus, amen, come quickly and receive our thanks even now as we give it to you in the powerful and the wonderful name that is ours, Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. In his name we pray, amen.